Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London for just one last day, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Two months ago, Ethiopia's government struck a deal with Tigrayan forces to end two years of fighting. But with troops still in Tigray, preventing the return of refugees, the resulting peace is fragile and uncertain. And most Mexicans could sing at least a bar or two of a narco-corrido, a type of ballad that critics claim glorifies criminality and violence, but which fans say reflects reality and honors ingenuity, loyalty, and bravery. But first... Earlier this week, the leaders of the United States, Canada, and Mexico met to review and renew the region's economic partnership. After years of trouble and tension during the Trump era, Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, summed up the mood, hailing the partnership as a victory for free trade. When free trade is at risk, that isn't good for competition in the global market. Thankfully, The belief in free and fair trade won the day. Among the commitments, a vow to deepen economic ties and promises to integrate further on semiconductor output. For decades, announcements that countries would work together in economic partnership were routine. But with more countries pursuing protectionist agendas at home, there are fears we may see far fewer of them in the future. Since 1945, the world economy has run according to a system of rules and norms designed to promote openness, but it's now deteriorating towards zero-sum competition. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. It starts with China's integration into the world economy, China never being an economy that really bought into the old rules-based order and which always used subsidies and state control of finance and business. America is now also resorting to industrial policy and subsidies. And instead of a sort of global race, countries everywhere now are competing to attract industry in a way that could end up being quite destructive. So this began with China and America responded. What does the response look like in America? Well, it's a series of bills that have been passed in 2022 I think loosely you could include the infrastructure bill that got passed and then importantly, the CHIPS Act, which included massive subsidies for chip makers in America 
and then the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, of course, primarily an environmental bill and included significant subsidies for green energy, but also consumer subsidies for the electric vehicles. And the sense in which these might be considered protectionist measures is not just that they're subsidies, it's that they're subsidies conditional on the production taking place substantially in America or North America. So for instance, by 2028, to qualify for the tax credit to buy an electric vehicle, that electric vehicle will have to have a battery that's been made in North America. So there's now this whole array of subsidies that contain provisions like that, which have been introduced over the past year. And what about the rest of the world? So if you start in Europe, Europe has its own chips package, which has been emerging in tandem with America's. The question is the extent to which it will respond to the Inflation Reduction Act and come up with countervailing subsidies for its electric vehicles and batteries, which a lot of European car makers are now lobbying for. But it's clear that Europe is moving towards industrial policy. In Asia, you have uh, significant subsidies for chips in high-income Asian countries. So Taiwan, Japan, South Korea have all been increasing their subsidies. And then in emerging Asia, you have Indonesia, which is desperate to attract the green supply chain surrounding batteries. And to that end, it has banned the exports of nickel, which has significant stores of, in order to try and get that industry to invest in Indonesia so it controls more of the supply chain rather than just the raw materials. And indeed, it's possible that in Latin America, some countries will also resort to these kinds of strategies or at least collaborate to control the supply of raw materials that are important to the green supply chain. Henry, you describe these changes collectively as a zero-sum model. What does that mean? And what's the effect of these changes collectively? The Biden administration defends itself by saying, well, isn't it great if the world has loads of subsidies for green energy? So they're sort of saying it's a positive sum game with regard to subsidies. The reason I think it's more likely to be a zero sum game is that if big economies compete to subsidize activity that would have taken place anyway, all they're doing is throwing money down the drain. If America produces $100 billion worth of subsidies, and then Europe produces $100 billion worth of subsidies, you get new activity. But it's also the case that both sides might have thrown away $100 billion without anything really moving. It's just that the companies involved have received large checks. And when you look at the history of industrial policy, it's quite common that it has turned into this race to the bottom. Ultimately, as well, industrial policy and big subsidies can distort the market in a way that's inefficient. The cheapest way for the world economy to decarbonize would be to harness the benefits of free trade, at least among allies like America and Europe, and let the market dictate how the supply chain stretches. And also, to the extent that countries which should be allies are at each other's throats diplomatically objecting to one another's subsidies, it will become harder for them to operate as a cohesive block. And it will become harder to solve global problems like sending climate finance to the poor world. So absent a complete reversal by the West and an unprecedented opening by China, what measures realistically could offset the negative consequences of these policies? Well, yes, it's clear that we're not going back to a global order that started in 1945. No one's saying that America should resurrect the attitude of the 1990s when everyone was really optimistic about 
the future of globalization and when trade deals could be struck at a global level. Now, these global institutions are somewhat hamstrung by the fact that they contain large autocracies whose development in certain areas that are considered strategic or of military importance, America is trying to hinder. So what the world actually needs is agreements between countries which provide the deepest possible degree of cooperation that's consistent with those countries' shared values. So you want the deepest possible cooperation between the allies in the West. You also need a certain amount of cooperation between America and China. But in a very practical way, it's quite difficult for America to now row back on the Inflation Reduction Act because those measures are written into law. And obviously, the House of Representatives have changed hands since it was passed. But you could perhaps agree on certain countervailing measures by Europe that are limited and quite precise. So for instance, were Europe to subsidise the export of its electric vehicles to America to the exact degree that America subsidises the electric vehicles sold in America, that would be a sort of second best solution that would re-level the playing field. And perhaps everyone could agree not to get into an endless spiral of subsidies. And Henry, you spent several years in America covering the American economy, living in Washington, you know it well. If you were placing bets, do you think America will change tack or do you expect the slide into protectionism to continue? I think it will change tack over the horizon of the next decade. And I think that for several reasons. One is that the history of the United States since 1945 has been to underpin this global order. And I'm optimistic about America living up to its history, I suppose, of being a country that recognizes that it benefits from openness. I also think that as China develops further and we move more towards great power competition in this century, it will become apparent that in order to prevail in that struggle, it needs its allies more than ever. And you can see this uh, with regard to chip making, where America has banned the export of high-end chips and advanced chip making equipment to China. But there are firms in the Netherlands and in Japan who could step in and, and provide that chip making equipment. So it needs its allies on side. And the other final thing I'd say is that a lot of people have become quite pessimistic since the election of Donald Trump, especially, that protectionism is somehow always a winning move in politics. And I think that's a somewhat fatalistic view. If you think that free trade is never a winning political proposition, then, you know, why bother being a free trader at all? In fact, we have had this system since 1945. I just think there's a little bit too much pessimism out there about the the ability to sell this to the American public. And I think with sufficient leadership, it can be sold, much as military aid for Ukraine has proved sustainable in the American polity, despite that being a war in Europe. I don't think America is inherently insular. All right, Henry, thanks so much for stopping by today. Thanks for having me, John. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front a rebel group in the northern reaches of Ethiopia, 
began handing its arms over to government forces. The peaceful transfer of heavy weapons comes in the wake of a brutal, bloody, and long-running civil war, which drew in neighboring countries, including Eritrea. Hundreds of thousands were killed. Millions were displaced. We are here to witness a crucial aspect of our assigned task as enshrined in Article 6 of the ceasefire declaration, which is the disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration process, uh, program. In November, a peace deal between the two sides provided hope. And in the aftermath, leaders from the TPLF and state forces seemingly cast aside their differences and posed arm-in-arm -arm for photographs. Food and medicine have begun flowing to starving civilians. Internet and phone networks have been partially reopened, reconnecting thousands of displaced Tigrayans. The deal, in short, has achieved much more than most observers predicted. But despite these positive signs, this is a fragile and uncertain peace. Last month, I visited Umrakuba refugee camp in eastern Sudan. It's a hot, dusty, but also quite picturesque place set among golden prairies right up by the Ethiopian border. Tom Gardner is our Horn of Africa correspondent. There are about 16,000 Tigrayan refugees there living in makeshift huts of wood and tarpaulin, where they've built shops and restaurants and small businesses in the two years since most of them were chased out of their homes, which are in what is officially known as Western Tigray. Their land, they told me, remains occupied either by militias and settlers from the neighboring Amhara region who took over this territory at the start of the war, or by soldiers from Eritrea who fought alongside Ethiopian government forces from its outset and have been implicated in some of the war's worst atrocities. And what is, what is your name? Fasaha. Fasaha? Yeah. Okay. And you're from Adabai? Yeah. Now, in interview after interview with these refugees, they recounted to me the challenges of returning home even after the war has ended. One, a man called Faseha, questioned why Eritreans were still on his land despite the agreement. Another said that when the truce was announced, he'd made plans to return, at least in his mind, perhaps in February or in March. <laughs> But now he was far less optimistic. But now that the fighting is over, shouldn't these troops have left? The peace agreement makes no explicit mention of Eritrea, but a roadmap that was drawn up by military commanders a few days later stipulated that the demobilization of the Tigrayan forces should take place alongside, and I quote, the withdrawal of foreign and non federal military forces from the region. It's still a bit ambiguous, but seems to pave the way for the departure of both Eritrean and indeed Amhara troops from Tigray. That hasn't happened yet. I mean, Eritrean troops are still in Tigray. There were some reported movements away from some key towns in the past couple of weeks, but they still seem to be in Western Tigray and in other parts of the region as well, where they've continued to loot towns to rape and murder civilians. Meanwhile, Western Tigray, or Walkite as it's known in Amhara, the disputed territory, as well as disputed territory in the south of the region, both of these remained under the occupation of forces from Amhara who 
took it over at the start of the war. But why? What reason do Eritrean troops have, or at least give, for staying in that region? Well, to wind it back a bit, the heart of the problem really lies in this troubled relationship between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and more specifically between Eritrea and the TPLF itself. So back in 2018, Ethiopia's new prime minister then, Abiy Ahmed, struck a peace deal with Eritrea's dictator, Isaias Afewerki, which ended a conflict between the two countries which had lasted nearly two decades. That's the peace deal which won Abiy the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. However, it also presented an opportunity for Isaias to settle personal scores with the TPLF. Now, I'm simplifying a bit here. The feud goes back decades or even longer, depending on who you speak to. But the TPLF was essentially in charge of Ethiopia when it defeated Eritrea in the bloody border war between 1998 to 2000. So Isaias and Eritrea more generally sees the TPLF, sees Tigray as a threat and also wants revenge for that war. So when Abiy went to war himself against the TPLF in 2020, part of a power struggle internal to Ethiopian politics, Isaias comes to his aid. And now, more than two years later, even after a peace deal has been struck between Abiy and the TPLF, Isaias is still pursuing the settling of these old scores. He's not a signatory to the deal between Abiy and the TPLF, so he may not feel bound by his terms. So even if he eventually pulls his troops out of the region, he can continue to find ways to weaken both the TPLF, but also, perhaps, Ethiopia itself, if he senses that Abiy's gone soft on his main foe. What are those ways? How would he do that? Well, Eritrea has a long history, in fact, of backing, training, hosting Ethiopian rebels opposed to the central government there. So, for example, I know he's boosting Tigrayan rebels who are opposed to the TPLF now. I mean, I met a group of young Tigrayan men in the Umrakuba camp in eastern Sudan who described being abducted to Eritrea and forced to undergo military training in order to fight the TPLF back in Tigray. But it's not only Tigray that's ablaze in Ethiopia, and it's not the only conflict zone in the country which Eritrea may complicate. In recent months, for example, rebel groups like the Oromo Liberation Army, the OLA, have proved very difficult for Abiy. They are a rebel movement from the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, which Abiy himself is from, the Oromo. And Oromia, the region, is at war itself. I mean, the center of Ethiopia's civil war was once Tigray, now it's Oromia. Abiy has stepped up military operations against the OLA in recent months. He's launched drone strikes, which have killed countless civilians. So should this war in Oromia escalate, it's not far-fetched to imagine the rebels might seek support from Isaias. And where is the TPLF in all of this? Have they laid down their arms? The latest positive step in terms of the implementation of the peace agreement is that Tigray has begun handing over its heavy weaponry to the federal army. However, it still has men under arms. Tigrayan military sources in eastern Sudan, for instance, said they have still some 20,000 fighters at the border. They may be ready to use force if necessary, should Eritrea refuse to leave or indeed if the Amhara forces in the disputed territories don't leave. So that remains a problem. So where does all of this leave the very fragile peace process that ostensibly ended conflict? It's very hard to predict how this would go. I should say many observers have been surprised by how quick the progress has been. There's no fighting now in Tigray, really. That's a very good thing. But how Abiy will respond should 
Eritrea continue to sabotage the peace in Tigray is hard to predict. I mean, under the deal, the federal army is responsible for protecting Ethiopia's sovereignty. So by that logic, Abiy might eventually feel compelled to use force to kick them out. Some Ethiopians have even speculated he might join forces with the TPLF to do this. I mean, that might sound hard to imagine to outsiders, but such a reconfiguration of alliances is not implausible. It's happened before in the history of conflict in this region. But for now, I would suggest Abiy's relationship with Azias is clearly strained, but it's probably not broken down entirely yet. So allowing Eritrean troops to remain inside Ethiopia might be the price he decides to pay in order to avoid a showdown with Azias and to also keep the TPLF on the back foot. What all of this means is that it's unlikely the refugees I met in Umrah Kuba are going to be able to return to their homes anytime soon. I think they will remain in limbo for some time yet. All right, Tom, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, John. On January the 5th, Mexican security forces captured Ovidio Guzman, who is the son of El Chapo, who is a notorious Mexican drug lord. Sarah Burke is The Economist Mexico City bureau chief. Ovidio himself was notorious, not only for also allegedly being a drug trafficker, but he was captured before in 2019. And in an embarrassing episode, Mexican security forces let go of him. They were ordered by the president to do so to prevent violence. That episode from 2019 was immortalized in the song Soy el Raton, or I Am the Mouse, which refers to his nickname, by the group Corrigo FAN. It's just one example of a narco corrido, a reimagined version of a corrido, which is a narrative song. And that they reflect the glamorous and violent world of Mexico's drug lords and drug trafficking business. So what exactly is a narco corrido? How would you define it? Well, essentially, it's a ballad, a narrative song about drugs. It's often about crime bosses or other activities or other things to do with their life. Most Mexicans could name one, sing one, hum one. So Soy el Raton, which you heard earlier, has become particularly well known and has been covered a lot. And it also prompted a flare up of the debate about these ballads. Well, what was the debate about? In many places, the authorities are not particularly happy about these songs. They think they promote crime and that they glamorize the life of drug lords. In 2017, Los Tigres del Norte were fined 500,000 pesos, which was then around $27,000, for performing a drug ballad at a concert. And in 2020, YouTube banned the video of a song by Lupio Rivera, who's another singer of Narco Corridos. It's true that sometimes these songs seem to glorify the lifestyle and violence, and sometimes they're even written at the request of a drug lord himself. Are these songs an accurate representation of life in the drug trade? I mean, often they are. They're as accurate, if not sometimes more accurate, than newspaper articles. They're seen as a source of information by many people who study them. So, for example, in Rueda de la Fortuna, or Wheel of Fortune, by Alfredo Olivas, he talks of an unlikely pact between Rafael Caro Quintero y El Mencho, who's the head of the newer Jalisco Generation Cartel. And several months later, that agreement was actually confirmed. Who are the fans, Sarah? Who listens to these songs? 
So the majority of fans are Mexicans. I mean, it's Spanish language. And they are both Mexicans here, but Mexicans abroad, most of them in the United States. And the vast majority are obviously law-abiding citizens who are not into the drug trade. <laughs> but it has an appeal a bit like gangster rap in the US. And it can also be, for those abroad, an expression of ethnic revindication or a tale of someone made good. You can even find values in these songs, you know, of loyalty to the gang. So they have different appeals to different people. What's the history behind them? So they grew out of the ballad tradition. So they didn't come up as a response purely to the requests from cartels or the drug trade itself. You know, corridos or narrative songs have a long history in Mexico. They tell tales of fictitious or real people and their exploits. And this was from Mexican independence in the 19th century and onwards. Especially during the revolution in the early 20th century. In the 1920s and 30s, ballads in the northern region started to talk about trafficking tequila into the United States during the Prohibition, and later that was narcotics. But as we know them today, these narco corridos really took off in the 1970s as the drug trade did. And it's evolved since then to reflect how the drug trade has changed as well. So at that point in the 70s and 80s, it was mainly talking about the trafficking, the vehicles used, the routes, perhaps the arms as well. Later, they started to focus on the actual drugs bosses themselves, about the women they had, the luxurious lifestyles, the money, etc. And during this period, there was a Mexican economic crisis. And so the narco became an aspirational figure and the song's more panegyric. So what does the future of narco corridos look like? I mean, I don't think they're going anywhere. You know, the drugs business in Mexico is flourishing in many ways. I mean, it's changing as well. Organized crime now do all sorts of things, not just trafficking drugs, but they make fentanyl, they extort people, they control agriculture. So you're likely to see the content of the songs changing. You've got more songs, you've got more singers, and the current federal government has no plans to ban the songs. It probably makes sense. Banning things rarely has any effect other than to make them more appealing to young people. But as Mexico's organized crime problem only is getting worse, I think we're going to see many more narco corridos to come. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell, Jack Gill, and Chris Impey. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producer is Alizé Jean-Baptiste, with extra production help this week from Sarah Larniuk. Our assistant producer is Barkley Bram. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.